Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's podcast, I'll be reconnecting with physicist Sean Carroll to talk about his new book, The Big Picture, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself. With so many podcasts out there in the atheist community, I was reluctant to do one of my own. But people asked me for updates on the many individuals we met in the book and the film, so I thought a podcast would be a good format to go back and revisit some of the people we met in A Better Life, as well as introduce you to some people I've met since doing the project that I wish I could have included. You can help support this podcast and the screening tour of A Better Life by supporting me on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. Sean Carroll is a physicist at Caltech, whose new book, The Big Picture, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself, comes out this month. He was featured in both the book and film version of A Better Life. I asked Sean about a line from his interview for the book where he said, It adds a certain spice to life, knowing that you only have a certain amount of time. Our lives are performances, not dress rehearsals. Neither the universe nor any external supernatural beings tells us what to do or provides us with explicit goals, but we have the ability to create such goals for ourselves. This, what we have and what we're doing right here and right now, this is what matters. One way of saying it is, if you really thought that there was life after death and there was heaven or something like that and it lasted forever, then on a strictly mathematical basis, the hundred years or so we have here on Earth is utterly irrelevant, right? <laughs> it's absolutely zero. Uh, but, except as like the ticket to get you in to heaven. But if, you know, for people who sort of wonder how life can have meaning or importance or mattering, if it does end, if this is it, I... I, I it's hard for me even to wonder why that's a question. If if these are the only years we have, if this is not a dress rehearsal, if this is all of our existence, then of course it has enormous meaning and importance because it is literally all there is. In between the time that we've met previously doing the book and now, you actually did a debate about life after death. I did, yes. Uh, Eben Alexander who uh, some of the audience might know, but he is a best-selling author, uh, is a neurosurgeon who wrote a book about his near-death experience where he visited his family in heaven and so forth. It's called Proof of Heaven. And uh, so I did a debate with him. It was two-on-two. So it was me and Stephen Novella against Stephen Alexander and Ray Moody. And the great thing was the this particular setup is called the Intelligence Squared Debates. And they actually take a poll of the audience about what their feelings are both before and after the debate. So you can see how you did. And how did you do? We won the debate uh, in various senses, although in fact what happens is there's a lot of people who come in undecided and then they actually sort of become persuaded by one side or the other. So the fraction of people who disagreed with us went up, but the fraction of people who agreed with us went up by a much larger amount. So we were much better at persuading the, uh, the undecided ones. That's amazing, and that must be a wonderful feeling to be able to, you know, look at people who are genuinely undecided about a particular topic and persuade them that you're right. Yeah, and I think it's it's really, really an important illustration uh, for anyone who's wondering about the efficacy of 
these events because I'm not persuading even Alexander that there's no life after death. I mean, his evidence is extraordinarily flimsy. And basically, he was in a coma for a little while and he hallucinated. And that's really the only thing that happened. And also, he's a bit of a fraudster. He's been you know, banned from practicing surgery in several states because of his fraudulent activities. So there's no reason for anyone to believe him. But people do. And so therefore, some people say, like, why do you even bother having these discussions with someone like Eben Alexander or William Lane Craig? You're never going to change their mind. And there's plenty of people whose minds you will never change. But there are also plenty of people who don't have their minds made up. So even if, which I don't believe, your goal in these events is to change people's minds, and that's the only goal, still, it's a very, very worthwhile thing to do. One thing I really liked about the debate, which I watched, um, was at the end, you made a very emotional plea. And you talked about being scared when you were, I think, nine years old or something. Can can you elaborate on that a bit? There's a huge pile of evidence. If we're simply evidence-based and ask, how do people's brains and belief systems actually work? Um, We don't know, is the short answer, why people choose to believe one thing or another. But it is certainly a complex and highly coupled interplay between emotional resonance and factual information. So there's something called the backfire effect, where if people have a belief and you just simply show them a study or a piece of data that contradicts their belief, they will come out of that holding onto their belief more strongly. You know, simple facts and data are not enough to wean people off their beliefs. You have to give them some, you know, you have to blaze an emotional path where they can sort of accept that their beliefs, it's okay to change them in some way. And so I think it's important in a debate like this, if I want to reach out to the people who don't already agree with me, to acknowledge where they're coming from, you know, to sort of say, look, I get it. I know why it would be very, very attractive to believe that there is something after we die. You know, it's very comforting. It's a big uh, part of how you might orient who you are. So I wanted to sort of sympathize with that and say that nevertheless, number one, the data and the information is all on our side, but number two, it's not emotionally devastating to accept the reality that uh, there is no life after death. It can be quite liberating. It's challenging. It requires a certain amount of courage, but it's also, you know, a lot of freedom and interest and excitement in the idea that our lives are what we make of them right here on Earth. Does that view of life and death affect you in the day-to-day living in your life? Yeah, you know, I think it does um, in various ways. You know, uh, we had the, uh, the terrible experience a year ago of my, my wife Jennifer's brother passed away from cancer. He was, you know, 50 years old. He was quite young. And her family is very religious. And so we could see how um, the naturalists responded to this tragedy and the religious people responded to this tragedy. And, you know, it's anecdotal data, but the naturalists took it much better. They were not holding out for a miracle to occur. They were facing up to the reality of it. And I think that, you know, it it is scary to think that literally any day I can, you know, something bad can happen. I can be in an auto accident, etc. There's lots of terrible things that could possibly happen that could, my life would be over and that would be it. It's not something I want to believe is true. But uh, so I think that that does kind of come into planning how you do live your life. I'm a big believer that these deep foundational questions about ontology and the fundamental essence of reality should and do feedback onto the practical issues of how you live your life, how you treat other people, uh, how you steer the course of of the three billion heartbeats a typical human being gets to have here in this lifetime. 
that's a good segue to the fact that you wrote a new book very similar to kind of these ideas and topics, right? You see how I worked that in there? You know, <laughs> the, the well-trained author will always be able to slip some things, some phrases in from their books so that, uh, yeah, so I wrote a new book. It's coming out. Um, in fact, in, in some ways, it's a 145,000-word elaboration on the uh, conversation that we had three years ago for the Atheist book. Um, my book is called The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. And I'm a physicist professionally, and so there's some physics in there. But most of the book is trying to draw the connections between all of the different ways in which we talk about the real world, whether it's physics or biology or philosophy or neuroscience or ethics and morality and meaning. And the, one of the chapters points out that scientists have shown that mammals – of various sizes. If you're a tiny little mammal, if you're a mouse or a shrew, your heart beats faster than if you're a big mammal like a whale or an elephant, but also you don't live as long. So it turns out that roughly speaking, all mammals get the same number of heartbeats in their life. Uh, and that, you know, that's a big number, three billion, but it's not overwhelmingly big, right? Like it, uh, you know, Every heart heartbeats happen pretty quickly, right? Once a second. So to know that you only have three billion of them um, really puts the finitude of your life into stark relief. Wow, three billion. Yeah, three billion. That's the number of uh, heartbeats we have in our lifetime. So chapter – I'm looking it up right now. Chapter – 45 is called Three Billion Heartbeats. And uh, the final sentence of the book is, you know, we, three billion heartbeats, the clock is ticking. What caused you to write this book in the first place? Well, I, again, I've always been a believer that there are these connections between what I do for a living, which is studying the ultimate nature of reality, cosmology, where the universe came from, fundamental laws of physics, and how we live our lives. Uh, I've also been very, very interested in philosophy and biology and complexity as well as the physics that I do professionally. So I thought that – and while I mentioned – there's many motivations. Yet another motivation is I think that atheists have – put a tremendous amount of effort over the last 10 or 15 years into saying why religion is bad and some effort into saying why religion is untrue, but less effort into saying, okay, now that God doesn't exist, how do we correctly talk about the world? I think that being a naturalist, someone who believes only in the natural world, uh, raises an enormous number of challenging questions. And even within naturalism, there are a lot of disagreements about these questions. So I wanted to sort of for the most part, talk about, you know, assume that God doesn't exist. I have some arguments in there to the contrary. But for the most part, this is a book about what it means to accept naturalism. You know, it gives the sales pitch a little bit, but, you know, making it clear that why complex structures like living beings can come into existence, even a world governed by the second law of thermodynamics, which says that disorder and entropy increase over time. So drawing those connections, uh, trying to set a stage for a more informed and intelligent conversation about what it means to live in a naturalist universe. It's so nice to hear somebody so much smarter than me say this same thing that I've been saying for the past year. Whenever I tour with the film, I talk about how we in the atheist world spend so much of our time dismantling the arguments for the existence of God or talking about why religion is, is bad or wrong. Um, when I don't think many people believe in God because of the 
arguments. You know, no one hears the Kalam cosmological argument and thinks, okay, there must be a God. They believe for emotional reasons. And so if we don't also address those underlying emotional reasons, I think we're fighting an uphill battle. That's exactly right. And I think that, uh, you know, you're quoted in the book. So uh, I think we're on the same wavelength here. But the the very, very short sales pitch for what my, what is in my book are two sentences. One is, there is nothing in the universe but the natural world. And then the second is, and that's okay. <laughs> you know, But it is a big shift if you really thought that the world we see and live in was just some tiny sliver of a much, much richer reality that had layers of spiritual and divine uh, realms on top of it. You would live a very different life, I think, than if you just thought that the world was matter and energy bumping into each other, obeying the laws of physics. And I think that we sort of haven't quite dealt with that as a culture yet. Even atheists, I think, sort of haven't really sat down and do the soul searching, as it were, that is required to reconstruct what it means to be a good person and live a good life, etc., in a world where the rules are things we make up, not uh, that are given to us by a holy book or scriptures. Now, I definitely can understand how doing a big project like this can shift your own thinking about certain things. What did you learn while putting this book together? I had a lot of fun writing this book because the majority of the book is about things I'm not an expert on. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of you know biology and, and, uh, and brain and philosophy studies and so forth. So I didn't really like dramatically change my mind about anything. I think that once you're at the point where you have a book proposal written down and you started to do the research and the outline, hopefully your mind is not going to change too dramatically in the, in the course of writing it. But um, certainly I had great fun just learning. You know, I know what ATP is now. I think that a lot of people are supposed to know that, a little molecule that carries energy from one part of our uh, body to another. And I can even tell you, in, at least in some simplified circumstances, how that energy gets from the sun to our muscles when we con- contract our muscles to lift up uh, a barbell or a glass of wine. And so putting all that together, I mean, I knew I, was, I had the conviction that it all does fit together, but seeing how it all comes together was a great thrill. So you mentioned how one of the most exciting things for in doing this book was that you were studying something that was new to you. Right. Your your physics fans, are they going to be uh, in for a treat? Is there there's less physics in the book and more um, philosophy? Or, or what, what's the distribution of, of topics in the book? Yeah, there's a lot of philosophy, a lot of biology, um, some neuroscience, and different kinds of philosophy and, and so forth, epistemology and ontology and whatever. So yes, it is not another physics book. There is physics in there, But roughly the outline is there's six big chunks of the book. And the way that I wrote it is, you know, the the whole scope is kind of overwhelming. And so I wrote tiny chapters. So a chapter is just like two or 3,000 words and there's 50 of them. And you can read them on the subway going to work in in a bite-sized piece. But the six big sections are, the first one is called Cosmos. And I just sort of set the stage. And it's even not mostly about cosmology. It's about the fact that the universe can just be and move by itself. It doesn't need an external pusher or causer. And that's what modern physics 
teaches us. The second part is called understanding, and more than anything else, it's about Bayesian reasoning and how we sort of come to choose hypotheses about the world, how to judge them, why we shouldn't be skeptical about the existence of reality and so forth. The third part is called essence, and that's where I actually do do a little bit of physics. I talk about quantum field theory and the core theory, which is the standard model of particle physics and general relativity, and I try to defend the claim that the laws of physics underlying our everyday lives are completely known. You know, we know everything that there is to know about the atoms that make up your body, etc. There's no room for new forces or particles that would ever be relevant to explaining biology or consciousness or something like that. Then in part four, which is called complexity, I talk about how even though, like we said, entropy is increasing and the universe is winding down in some sense, nevertheless, it is extremely natural that within that process, complex systems come into being, whether they are galaxies or whether they are armadillos or other life forms here on Earth. The growth of complexity over time in an expanding uh and tropically increasing universe. Then in part five, called thinking, I try to make the case that consciousness is not evidence for changing the rules of physics in any way, that we need to explain some new phenomena just to explain consciousness. I don't actually explain consciousness. I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure anyone does. I think that there's lots of uh, good old-fashioned scientific work to be done. But I really try to make the case that it's not – you don't need to change the fundamental rules of reality to account for consciousness. And then in part six called caring, I talk a little bit briefly about why it should all matter, like why we should care about our world if it is just the workings out of some impersonal laws of physics over the course of billions of years. Oof. Oh, that's a, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there, yeah. And so I had a great time. I actually – this is sort of the first time in my book writing career that I went and did a little research trip. I took three weeks and I traveled around and I knocked on people's doors and people were enormously generous uh, with me. Uh, to me with their time, you know, Nobel Prize winners, uh, Jack Shostak at Harvard, who's one of the world's leaders in origin of life studies, David Chalmers, uh, Daniel Dennett, Rebecca Goldstein, all these wonderful thinkers and philosophers just chatted with me and filled my brain up to the brim with ideas. And hopefully I did them some justice in the final product. I have to uh, thank you for, uh, there's a there's a clip of you on YouTube, which I saw, which it's probably one of the most useful things, I think, for atheists or skeptics, because it's it's a talk that you gave, I believe it was at Skepticon or one of these skeptical conferences where oh, yeah. you go into talking about why, you know, why when people say to you, well, maybe there's some force that we don't know about, we haven't just discovered it yet. Yeah. Because that's the kind of thing that I think people really believe, as opposed to, you know, the the Kalam cosmological argument. I think that people actually think, well, maybe there's something we don't know yet about how these particles interact and maybe there's a a force that's acting here that we just don't we just don't know. And you do such a good such a good job at explaining that and why that's not the case. Um, it's really incredible. I think that this will be um, a major discussion point for people who read the book because I think you're right. This message doesn't get out there. And you know, when I had the debate with Ibn Alexander on life after death, when we took questions from the audience, there's an obvious one. I should have sort of anticipated it, but people really have this feeling like when you, when you die, where does the energy go? 
right? There's some they, they have this feeling that there's some life force. You know, we think scientifically we haven't really taken that seriously for the past hundred years, but I think informally on the street, people think that there's some kind of energy associated with being alive. And I tried to say, like, where does the energy go when you shut off your laptop? Where does the energy go when you put out a candle? The energy doesn't go anywhere. Energy is conserved. It's just that the process stops. You know, there is some motion going on, and that energy of motion or that activity that you see gets changed into some other kind of potential energy or whatever. And the same thing happens when you die. We know what particles you're made of. There is no way when you die for the information that is contained in your neurons, in your brain, to be carried off because we just know the laws of physics well enough to say that's not going to happen. So, and I think that even at the sort of technical level among, uh, I think physicists, if you made this claim to them and explained exactly what you meant, they would sort of grudgingly nod and say, yeah, I guess so, but I never really thought of it that way. I'm currently sort of polishing a presentation to philosophers uh, that I've given a couple times and I'll give again in a couple weeks called Quantum Field Theory and the Limits of Knowledge where I tried to make the case that we really have a good reason for believing that the behavior of the particles and atoms of which we're made in the circumstances that we actually see in our everyday lives, so like not in a high-energy particle accelerator or a cosmic ray, but like in our literal bodies and the rooms around us, we do have very good reason to be extremely confident that we understand that more or less completely. And that's not to say we understand everything. People, you know, get get their... Uh, dander up because they think that I'm making one of these claims that physics is right around the corner from understanding everything in the world. That is very, very far away from being the truth. But some things we do understand, it just so happens that our understanding includes the entire domain of what happens inside your body. After going through all of this philosophy and science to set up the fact that it's the same message, right? I mean, we are just a bunch of atoms and nevertheless we have useful ways of talking about ourselves as people, agents, making choices and moving through the world. So I illustrate this, just to get myself in trouble, I illustrate this using gender identity. And I you know, make the point that whether or not you are male or female is not something fixed by nature in, in some metaphysical way. So I quote the uh, Catholic, National Catholic Catechism or the, the no, maybe it's the, the National Catholic Bioethics Center. They really go on about the fact that you might be confused about whether you're male or female, but you really are one or the other. It's your nature, and you can't deny it no matter how confused you might be. And I tried to make the point this is exactly the kind of place that it matters whether you believe that the world is fundamentally natural or something uh, – that there's other layers. In a naturalist world, there, it is not true that you have some deep nature that says you're male or female. The question is, what is the best description of who you are and how you feel and how you act and how you behave? And so it should be, we should be very, very open to people who sort of have one set of biological genitalia and yet self-identify as, as something else. Uh, so I think that it's not unfair to find ourselves, to locate ourselves, identify ourselves as a certain part of the world and say that when we die, that will be the end of me. And even to be sad about that, you know, even though I won't be around to be sad about it once it happens, I can be sad now that it will happen someday and that my friends will hopefully be sad and things like that. So I think that much of our everyday vocabulary is more or less okay as long as we understand sort of what justifies it and in some parts it's not okay, like gender identity is a good example. Brian Green, 
advocates this idea where the entire past and future already exist as a kind of 4D universe. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm an eternalist, basically. Um, I think that if you look at the laws of physics, there is nothing about them that distinguishes the moment now from any other moment. Uh, just to make it even more dramatic, I am uh, I place most of my credence in the Everett or many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which means that I think that it's likely that the fundamental laws of physics are deterministic. So the fundamental laws of physics don't describe some sort of spatial world with stuff in it evolving through time. They describe this four-dimensional universe. And relativity says that dividing that four-dimensional universe into three dimensions of space and one of time is not even unique. Different people will do it different ways, and that's okay. So to think that there's something special about the moment now is very, very difficult to maintain once you understand modern physics. There are some people who, who try to do it. It's not, it's not completely settled. But I think that the simplest interpretation of what we've learned about how the world works is the past, present, and future are all equally real. It's interesting how we can look at the universe and come to conclusions like that. And at the same time, it's difficult in our day-to-day -day lives to wrap our minds around that. You're still going to act in your day-to-day -day life as if the world works in a particular way, right? Yeah, and that's completely okay as long as you don't, you know, come up against one of these places where it does matter. You know, I think that we – the I like to use these phrases. Uh, Wilfred Sellers, the philosopher, uh, introduced the manifest image of the world versus the scientific image of the world. The manifest image is sort of like the, our everyday world. There are people and, and desks, but there are also sort of causes and effects and reasons why and things like that. Then the scientific image – can appear to be wildly different, right? I mean, at the deepest level that we know now know, it's a story about wave functions and quantum fields and particles and differential equations. And so reconciling these different images of the world is a big part of my book, for example. And But the manifest image isn't like way off. It isn't wrong. You know, there are people in automobiles and, and oceans in the world. These are accurate categories for describing our macroscopic reality. So it's only when you sort of push things to the edges that you realize that, you know, your, your everyday view of the world might need to be updated a bit. So I guess you're saying it's kind of like a, a piece of a puzzle, which can have a particular shape in and of itself and a particular and particular attributes um, and things that are contained on that particular piece. But put it together, it also becomes part of a larger interconnected picture. Yeah, I think uh, there's many, many vocabularies that interlock and need to be compatible with each other. And it's going to be full employment for scientists and philosophers over the next century to sort of not only figure out what each individual way of talking really is, but showing how they all fit together coherently and consistently. That's some good job security, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, we're not running out of things to do. We, need, we might run out of people who will pay us to do it, but that's a different question. What do you hope people get out of this book? A friend of mine who read it uh, gave me the highest compliment I've yet received, that you know they, uh, they were delighted every third sentence and wanted to argue every other third sentence. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for. I don't expect everyone to agree with everything, and I don't think that I know of anyone who would agree with everything I say. Uh, I mean, I, I almost hope not, because in a book this long, chances are that not everything I say is even correct, right? I mean, a lot of these things are out there on the edges of what we know. I try to be very careful about 
dividing the line between what is what we should be confident about and what we can't. But yeah, I hope that people sort of get a better appreciation for how it all does fit together, for where we haven't gotten the answers yet and, and more work is needed to be done, and they get inspired to go out and figure some more stuff out. One thing I want to ask people as I reconnect with them from doing the book, and it's it's interesting to reconnect after a number of years with people um, just to see how their lives have changed. And one thing I wanted to ask everyone that I've, I met when I was doing the book, which changed my life in so many different ways. Um, and we talked when we met about, uh, you know, some of the most exciting moments of your life and things that have happened and, and how you see joy and meaning. What's one of the coolest things that you've done since we met three years ago? The things that I think are cool might not be that exciting to the outside world. Like, the, I already I already mentioned that little three week research trip that I did for writing this book, um, where I just got to sort of talk to a bunch of really smart people in a bunch of very different areas in uh, outside my own area. So I think I thought that was really kind of thrilling. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, again attached to writing the book, uh, my wife Jennifer and I took a. a Three or four weeks, I forget, but we took a writer's retreat. We went to a, a friend had a sort of vacation house that he let us use, and we went there and hid out and did nothing but writing. And it was fantastic. Like I didn't, you know, talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah, we like went out for dinner occasionally and things like that. But it was just, you know, pure sit down, concentrate, and get that done. So to me, you know, that's just thrilling. Um, and the final thing I will mention, which hasn't happened yet, I'm, I'm working really, really hard to finish a paper that I'm writing right now. And when science is going well, uh, you know, most, of, most of my time I'm not writing books. Like My day job is actually writing scientific research papers. When your research is going well, the paper that you're currently working on finished is the best one finishing, is the best one you've ever written and the one you're most excited about. And that is true for me right now. It's a, you know, trying to show how space-time can be stitched together by quantum entanglement. Um, and I think this is a very, very exciting new area that people are just beginning to catch on to. And so it's, uh, I think it's sort of the most exciting time in my scientific research career for that reason. That sounds really interesting, even though I don't understand most of those words. But I... <laughs> but individually, all the words are cool, right? So they are very cool, yeah. Putting them together must be cool. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to write another book explaining this particular topic. Someday, yeah. Someday. Listen, Sean, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for thinking of me, having me on. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. Special thanks to Michael Trollin for his support. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life or the 2016 screening tour, visit theatheistbook.com.